today's episode, how a missed opportunity to teach Australian Prime Minister ScoMo hip-hop dancing on Christmas Island led to the creation of a social enterprise delivering renewable energy solutions to people in need in India. From Blue Tribe Media, this is the Good Business Podcast, the show where we talk to business leaders, social entrepreneurs and innovators about aligning profit with purpose and how you can make doing good, good for business. Now here's your host, James McGregor. Welcome to episode one of the Good Business Podcast. Got a great show for you today because today I'm talking to Alexi Seller. Now, Alexi is the CEO and co-founder of the Pollinate Group. Now, the Pollinate Group have a really interesting uh, business model. You see, what they do is they empower uh, women entrepreneurs uh, through a customer financing model to provide uh, access to a range of life-changing products like uh, clean and affordable uh, energy. Uh, technologies to poor people living in slums in villages in India and Nepal. Now, I first met Alexi way back in 2013 when we were both speaking at a sustainable development conference uh, down in Melbourne. Uh, And at that time, she'd just co-founded what was then um, called Pollinated Energy, which she formed with five other friends uh, to see if they could find a way for children uh, living in slums in a um, place in southern India uh, to have a light to study at night time, so using like solar lighting. So, so what began as a trial of solar lights in uh, this makeshift community has now developed, developed into the Pollinate Group, which today empowers uh, women as leaders of a change to distribute products that help families save time, save money, and improve their health. Uh, so these entre- entrepreneurs, which they call Pollinators, uh, provide these products on a short-term payment plans to their communities who usually have trouble accessing loans or credit. Uh, They currently operate across India, Nepal, Australia, and the US. Um, Now, during this interview, Alexi is actually based in India. And if you've ever been to India, you'll you'll know the cacophony of sound that comes from the vehicles honking their horns. And if you listen close, you actually hear the horns outside the building that uh, she's talking in. So, But in this episode, we talk about the reason Alexi founded a company, uh, the challenges she faced, uh, what advice she'd give to others who have a vision for a better world. And we also get an exclusive on um, discussing the missed opportunity that she had to teach the uh, current Australian Prime Minister, ScoMo, to bust a move like MC Hammer. So take it away, MC. So I believe that your original life plan didn't always involve developing uh, renewable energy solutions in developing countries, and it involved you know, being a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, there was even the chance of a professional dancing career in there somewhere. Uh, so take us back in time and give us a little bit of the backstory about how you became uh, the co-founder of a company that provides access to affordable and clean energy solutions to people living in urban slums in India. Yeah, well, that yeah, that was my uh, life plan when I was about six years old. So <laughs> things changed a bit along the way. Um, yeah, I think the, the backstory is essentially that I um, I travelled a lot in my teens and after university and explored. Um, I travelled a lot in Latin America and then worked, you know, in multiple different volunteering and development roles. Um, and I guess I was always a bit frustrated at, at entering into situations and not being fully equipped to do anything that was productive or long-term in, in making change. So I had a few experiences like teaching English and working in orphanages as a lot of young Australians have done. Um, and so I decided to go back uh, to Australia and study um, and kind of invest my career in in creating longer term, more systemic um, change for people living in poverty. And I chose to study uh, energy, like renewable energy engineering and arts and language and culture. It's always been a passion of mine. 
Um, and I wasn't exactly sure how where that was going to land me, but a couple of years after university, I first met um, Monique, who's my co-founder of Pollinate Energy, um, one of my one of the co-founders. Um, who had just returned from Bangalore and was uh, surveying communities who still buy kerosene every day to light their homes. And we were discussing how um, unfortunate it is really that today, you know, the engineering world is very focused on product development and technology. And there's actually a lot of really good, um, fairly low cost solar products out there that these families could use, but still there's a huge gap in the supply chain and there's a huge lack of knowledge about how to serve customers who who are still at the bottom of the pyramid and so I was I was quite fascinated by that um, by that challenge and yeah I hopped on a plane to India to see what it was about and then suddenly it all sort of fell into place um, it's now been seven years uh, that I've been with pollinate and our business has evolved a lot over that time but fundamentally that kind of desire to I guess put my effort into something that I feel like is not being addressed or that people, um, you know, other organizations are not focusing on has always been there. Um, and just using, you know, all of the opportunity and education and support that I've had to, to make lives better around the world. Yeah, great. Uh, and I also understand uh, from very reliable sources that hip hop dancing for Afghan refugees also formed part of that journey. <laughs> yeah, and I'm pretty sure that ScoMo was like on Christmas Island <laughs> when that happened. He was. I'm pretty sure he was like the immigration minister or something at the time, and it was it was a bit of a controversy because no one really knew what volunteers were doing on Christmas Island, and he walked past my hip hop class. Um, yes, so dance is actually still a big part of my life, and funnily, I just held an event in Bangalore yesterday morning, like a rooftop morning dance off um as like a you know like a sober morning disco here in Bangalore so that's still there um it definitely keeps me sane and um is something I love doing and a way that I love connecting with other people and it's kind of fascinating how something like dance or sport you know can can build relationships and communities all over the world so that's I'm also retaining not a professional dancer like I dreamed when I was a child but <laughs> Fair enough. I actually dreamt of being a rap dancer when right. I was a kid at school and used to drag a bit of cardboard to school and be uh, doing the head spins and the back wow. spins to run DMC. Maybe that's a bit of oversharing. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> so so take us back in time a little. Um, so, yeah, the Pollinate Group was originally Pollinate Energy. Is that right? Yes. So you mentioned these families that were using kerosene lamps in their homes and the issues associated with that. So how, how did you even come up with the original idea for Pollinate uh, and where did that inspiration come from? Yeah, so at the time um, when we were starting Pollinate, uh, there were a few examples of other social business, businesses around the world who were bringing solar into communities, but most of them were, were rural, rural, so they were using... Um, an entrepreneur model basically they go into a village find a village entrepreneur pay that person commission for every solar light they sold um, into their community and a lot of the early businesses also were product developers because it was just there was nothing really available um, so when we came in we realized there were quite a few companies that were getting off the ground with very good high quality product um, green light planet and daylight were the two that kind of still around today um, and so we chose really to focus on the distribution side <clears throat> and 
take that model of, of the village entrepreneur into urban slums in Bangalore. Um, and there are some differences in terms of, you know, the market, like how people live, um, how close they live together, traffic and getting around the city. Um, so logistically, though, there was a few variations, but ultimately um, we were successful in just recruiting people to be an agent with us, who we called our pollinators, and then building, helping them build relationships in the individual communities um, across the city that they would serve. Um, and there were a couple of things that we ad- adopted from other businesses. For example, like we tried to recruit from within the community and we were very unsuccessful. Today we are successful with this because we focus on women entrepreneurs, but in the beginning we were looking for people to do full-time jobs um, and travel around the city and it was just it's too too big a leap for them and they can't commit to that activity. Um, and we also tried doing group loans where we offered the product on payment plan but only if there were five or more households buying together, which is a very common method um, of rural microfinance which was sort of pioneered through Muhammad Yunus in Bangladesh Um, but then we realized that a lot of these communities didn't have very strong relationships with their neighbors and they weren't they were very uncertain about their future they weren't even sure like if they had to go back to their village in a couple of weeks and they didn't want to make that decision based on someone else um, who might have to up and leave very quickly so we we actually kind of debunked a couple of myths I think around the model we we were successful in in building relationships ourselves so we didn't have to rely on existing trust structures but kind of um you know were able to come in and still provide that level of support and then also we finance end consumers who live on less than two us dollars a day um with a default rate of one to two percent as individual customers with zero collateral which is impressive no one else in the sector has really um, achieve that to date. So, yeah, we kind of, we picked up what was what was going on around the world around us, but then we I guess we realised we're in a bit of a different situation and had to do things differently. Yeah. So, assuming it all went perfectly from day one, what were some of the biggest challenges that you think you faced? Now, you mentioned you know break the breaking down these you know, these trust barriers. Um, you know, some of the people you recruited early on the piece just didn't quite work. You know, what, what were the biggest challenges that you think you faced um, in sort of making this vision for Pollinate into reality? I think some of the hardest, like looking back compared to where we are now, I think definitely we face a lot of challenges by being foreigners. Um, and that's not only because like regulation-wise we face certain challenges, which is one thing, um, but also just our understanding of the community dynamic, what what was going on, like how we could best uh, most efficiently operate um, to kind of match like how they were already interacting with one another. We were kind of in the beginning just coming in and trying to figure out how we could sell a solar light and whether that would work. I think really we were quite successful, but now we know a lot more about what's going on in our communities and we've built very long-term relationships and it is now becoming easier to implement change. So as I mentioned, you know, today, our model has pivoted and we're looking at identifying women from within the communities as entrepreneurs. And that's, um, that brings both like a better business opportunity and a better impact opportunity, which is really great for us and our strategy. Um, the impact being obviously that women in the communities have an opportunity to earn more money through this, through this supply chain and delivery of product, um, which is really important. Um, they gain financial independence and change the way that people think about women in the communities and what they're capable of. Um, and on the business side, like they are 
they live in the community, so they really understand the product range and what the needs are of their neighbours. They're more effective at communicating about it than we might be from the outside. Um, and they're also very connected to lots of other villages um, through their network where they've come from. And so they have access to a market that we can't really access um, from where we are now. So things like that that, um, you know, in the beginning we would just kind of focus on like, okay, there's this many communities in each city. We will deliver this product like one product, this is how we'll do it. And now, um, you know, by recognizing what else is going on at the customer level and kind of listening to how they normally behave, we can actually create a business model that is much easier um, to implement because it's just got faster uptake from the community, um, which is an exciting place to be at now. So did you always focus on female entrepreneurs as part of your uh, business model? We, did, we didn't. So, yeah, I had this realisation a few years ago when my last co-founder left and I was um, came on, like sort of took the role as a CEO and I realised that actually I was the only female staff member left in the company, um, which was quite a shock because we had four female co-founders and still had not really been able to attract women in and we just hadn't paid attention to it to be honest um and then when I did I and started to correct that I realized uh what we were up against was quite a lot of um just resistance and lack of understanding about what women were capable of even in our staff roles let alone in the field um we always had some women field like pollinators, um, the field agents, but we could never really get that beyond like 20% um, in our our field team. So um, first I started driving change with my own team and and employing more women into the organisation. That changed the way that women in the field thought about their opportunity and a couple of them did once we got our first female staff hire. um, Some of the field agents came to her and said, you know, I, I never thought I was able to also work like in the office. I thought women could only work in the field, which was a bit confronting for me because obviously I'm a woman, but um, the I think I was perceived as a foreigner more than a woman or as a foreign woman and therefore there were different rules for me basically. Um, so our Indian staff were not feeling like there was opportunity for them just because there was a woman at the top of the company. Um, so that was a big change we went through. And then we actually took it a whole step further. We merged with Empower Generation, a, a women empowerment organization from Nepal. Um, and we kind of took everything that they had developed around developing women in, um, in rural communities in Nepal. They also had an entrepreneurship, like a solar entrepreneurship model and are applying that now in India. And that's how we've been able to, to make that change. But it's been a very significant pivot for the company. Um, a very exciting one has opened up a whole new um, way of making impact and actually a much more efficient way to scale because by building up women entrepreneurs, we penetrate deeper and deeper into these communities rather than having like a surface level interaction. So it has been a really exciting journey, definitely a challenge, I'm sure, if you spoke to any of my team. Um, but, yeah, it, it's been, I think it's been a very positive um, addition to the work that we were already doing, which is just helping us become more effective at, at serving these communities. Yeah, and I think and uh, by targeting yeah, and empowering those female entrepreneurs, uh, we also know um, one of the quickest ways to empower a community is to support the women in the communities yeah. um, because they reinvest their income uh, into their kids and into the community and local businesses uh, so you can have this opportunity to, you know, the impact you have 
can go much further than your initial impact. So I think that's yeah, probably a good pivot for you guys. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's interesting talking to families in the communities, like as you know, as we're recruiting women. Um, there's uh, there's definitely you know, depending on the community, there are different levels of resistance and pushback. But we you know we look for a, a family where they're interested and supportive of of um, the girl or the woman to join us. It's very important that we have we engage her parents or her in-laws or her husband or whoever else is an influencer in her family in that process and kind of help them understand that this is not about like pulling a woman out of this situation and giving her all this power um like yes we want to empower her but it's actually about the whole family like we want to develop her so that she becomes um like you said she can contribute more to her family and a lot of women feel um you know, they're held back from work opportunities and they feel quite depressed and demotivated that they can't do anything about furthering their family and all depend on their husband and their husband's income. And that actually also creates a lot of stress um, for the male earner in, in the home. So it is an interesting conversation to have. And we've been, I think, inspired by all of the families who have joined. Um, within a year, we've recruited something like 100 women into the network in India and we have very ambitious goals to to scale that up next year so um, it's an exciting exciting progress yeah great it sounds amazing sounds like you're you know, making really great inroads can you maybe uh, unpack a little um, you know, when you're running these social enterprises you still need to keep the lights on right you still need you know, resources to deliver what you want to deliver um, so can you maybe tell us a little bit about um, pollinates business model you know how do you, how do you, how do you keep the lights on yeah, so we um, we have like three core streams of, of revenue, um, all of which are operating all the time. Um, and so the sale of products in the communities is one. The customers do pay for their product. Um, the profit we make from those sales is at this point um, about, about enough to cover the field staff who serve the communities directly, but definitely not enough to cover the entire operation, which um, would be unreasonable to assume at this point in our growth um, that that would cover all you know salaries and operations um, in the head office the other revenue stream we have um, or way of bringing in funds is our fellowship program um, which is an opportunity for students and professionals and executives from around the world to come in uh, to our project sites in India and Nepal uh, learn from our approach to social business, um, do projects and research with us that are valuable to, to pollinate that we can take forward, um, and also just spend time in the communities and understanding what is going on um, for these families. We've, you know, I mentioned my early experiences before. I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there in the world who want to do good and don't quite know what their role is or how they can start. Um, and so we set up this fellowship program with an aim to give people um you know, a genuine chance to to expose themselves to a different reality, um, one that doesn't doesn't you know create additional harm in the community, but is always putting our local team forward in the community. But um, it just gives them a chance to understand what's going on and to interact with people and get a better sense of you know the complexity, I guess, around living in poverty and and what it really it's not just about not having money. Um, there's a lot of other things involved, so. That's been a really, um, that's something we've run since day one and it's growing and very successful and we've just launched the executive program this year. We have one coming up um, in October, which are, yeah, for like senior business leaders, I guess, to really, really look, like hone in on in their business, what can they do, how can they drive a new mandate for change um, and better social outcomes through their business 
um, a lot of leaders on the last program in particular learned a lot from our approach to engaging women where, you know, we're engaging women in very, very difficult regions in, in, in city communities and poor communities in India versus um, our executives who are coming from corporate business in Australia and trying to think about how that how to draw parallels and how they can apply some of our approaches um, to ensure that women are moving up the, the senior management pathway. Um, so that was a really interesting conversation with them as well. Um, so, yeah, that's, I guess, the, the second way that we can bring funds in and, and support what we're doing on the ground. And then the final one is grants and philanthropy, which we're constantly raising money for, um, but getting more and more traction in, um, which is always exciting to see. And I guess as our organization continues to grow and build profile, um, we're able to bring on more and different kinds of funders and our funders are incredibly supportive of our approach and um, come quite close into our organization as well, which we enjoy um, to really understand how we're how we're learning on the ground, how we're changing, what we're doing differently, um, and supporting us to to keep innovating and um, and reaching more people. So, with your pollinators, are you selling um, product through your pollinators? Is that how it works? Yes. So that's that's the product sales part exactly. So pollinators are um, yeah they're kind of our they're actually part of our staff base who, who go out into the field every day. Um, and then the women entrepreneurs, um, it's a little complicated because we're in transition right now, but effectively <laughs> the women entrepreneurs are in the communities. We sell to them and they on sell to their customers. Um, our pollinators are becoming more and more like a, um, just a link in that chain who help us get to the women entrepreneurs. So what does Pollinate look like today? Uh, you, you, know, you started back in um, 2012 with a bunch of co-founders. Um, what, is it, what has it developed into and what does it look like today? Yeah, so we are now across four states in India and two districts in Nepal. Um, we have a staff base of 100 and about 200 plus women entrepreneurs um, living in the communities we serve. Um, so I guess that's a sense of the scale, which is very different from when we started. Um, I think also in terms of the vision, it, you know, there's still a very strong vision in the company. We talk a lot about impact, the impact of our work. We talk a lot about, you know, the fact that our impact, impact model and our business model are intertwined, um, which is extremely, um, well, I guess was clever of us, but also fortunate, I think, for our team that they know that every time there are taking a product out into the communities and making a sale. It also means impact for that community, um, which is a very powerful way to develop our business model. Um, and that continues to be sort of front and center of, of how we think. And we, I guess, are also exploring other ways that we can um, support the sector. So this, you know, the executive fellowship is an example of that, of finding, you know, figuring out how we as Pollinate can help corporate executives think differently about the social impact they have and how important it is that businesses around the world pay attention to this. Um, it's not just our job as the social businesses. It, the reality today is that the social businesses are very small in terms of revenue and impact because where this is a new um, development um, and we think it's important to influence other sectors as well to think about how they can drive change from where they are. Um, and then equally on our side, you know, there are lots of organizations around the world now who've developed up in the last five years um, working on micro-entrepreneurship and last mile distribution. Um, and so we're exploring there as well how we can support that sector. We've been part of a number of, um, 
uh, I guess, like online webinars and um, material development to help other last mile distributions like learn from our mistakes so they get there faster, um, as well as more direct support um, as, you know, our merging with Empower Generation was bringing two last mile organizations together to make them stronger. Um, and we're supporting another partner in Myanmar right now to help them provide them with our training um, resources and tools so that they can develop their entrepreneurs more quickly. So really taking, you know, not just looking at ourselves, like scaling out and selling more products, but looking more at the broader the ecosystem, the sector we play in and um, the rest of the world and how we can best kind of, you know, leverage for impact. So if there was someone out there listening to this podcast today and they had this dream um, for a social enterprise, um, say, you know, addressing one of the sustainable development goals, what's one piece of advice that you would give that person? Good question. Um, I mean, I think we still need more innovation. So firstly, if you are interested in setting up your own business to address that, that's fantastic. Um, it is a very hard journey, but, you know, we need more and we need them to survive. Um, and I guess on that note, the, the main advice I would, I would give is to look at what else is already going on around the world. Um, and if your idea is already in action, um, is there a way you can support and develop that person or that organization who's already got some traction? Um, or do you need to refine your concept to, to complement something that's already happening? Um, what, what is really difficult is when we all start to, you know, in a very nascent um, developing sector of social enterprise, if we all kind of start to compete with one another, it doesn't really help um, the situation. So I would definitely advise, you know, doing research, connecting with other organizations and seeing whether you can you can enhance what they're doing or complement what they're doing somehow and you'll probably be more successful with that approach as well. Yeah, yeah, good advice. Um, I, just, I just wanted to go back and dig into your fellowship program uh, that you mentioned earlier um, because I think that'll be um, of quite a bit of interest to our audience uh, listening to this podcast. Um, so can you maybe talk us through what a typical fellow, fellowship program looks like, you know, what, what I do, um, how long is it? You know, where do they go? Um, and, w- and what's someone who participates um, getting out of it? Yeah. So the fellowship programs, um, <clears throat> they vary in length based on um, who you are. So our students come, our university students come for three to four weeks. Um, pr- professionals, um, usually mid-career professionals come for two weeks and executives, it's just one week. Um, I guess that's a sense of how <laughs> we structure it given Um, the kind of time that people have available at different stages of their career um, and their interests and what they want to explore. Um, In general, all of the fellowships have the same overarching ethos of um, bringing people in, immersing them in our business, challenging them with different kinds of um, problems that they wouldn't normally face day to day in their own part of the world or or workplace, Um, and then giving them an opportunity to to test that out on the ground, um, whether that's actually a prototype or if it's like survey work um, or analysis or anything that kind of, you know, to help them actually get a result by the time they finish up with us. Um, What we found is a lot of people come to us with genuine curiosity, um, trying to figure out, you know, if a career in the social sector is for them. Um, Some people find out that it's not for them, which is also, I think, really helpful um, to have that experience in the field and then realize that actually, you know, living overseas in the field is not something they're interested in. 
but then maybe they can support somewhere else. Um, so I often give advice to the fellows who are here, um, many of whom are you know, very ambitious and, and want to be a social entrepreneur or a CEO of an organization. Um, and, and generally my advice is to you know, think about where, where they can best play a role. Um, you might want to live in the city that you've grown up in, but that doesn't exclude you from supporting organizations like Pollinate or supporting other initiatives um, that create change in their own community. Um, so it's just really important to, to reflect on that. And I guess what the fellowship does is brings, you know, an eclectic um, group of people together of about, you know, we usually have 10 foreigners and, and five or six local um, nationals in a group, so either Indian or Nepali. Um, and we take you out of your comfort zone and out of your regular day-to-day um, -day life um, which means, you know, not only are you on challenging work assignments, but you're also getting some time to mentally step away from where you normally are and to really reflect and think about what your role is in the world and, and where you want to focus your time and energy. Um, most of our fellows come out the other side saying in some way it's life-changing, which sounds really dramatic, but, I mean, I think it is. I think it really does force people to reconsider where they're at in their career. Um, they may take you know, look for different internal roles in their organization. We've had lots of fellows go and start their own social businesses off the back of their experience with us. Um, we've had also a number go through and, and pursue pathways to work with, with groups like the United Nations or um, embassies around the world and, and really looking at different ways that they can enact change. And yeah, we're just, we're quite honored, I think, to have been a part um, of each of their personal journeys. And we still maintain a lot of contact to hear how they're going and, and what they've how they've put into practice what they've learned will pollinate through that fellowship. Uh, yeah, great. That sounds amazing. Um, so hopefully, there's someone listening out there that they think, yeah, that's for me, and um, you know, and when we hear from them. Um, so on that note, if if someone wanted to learn more about the fellowship program or just get in touch with Pollinate in general, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, the easiest way is um, through the website. It's www.pollinategroup.org and there is a contact button there. We do monitor our contact emails daily, so it's okay. You can send an email through there um, or through our social media, which is also monitored. Um, the fellowship has um, all the information on the website as well on the fellowship tab so you can look at the different options, um, figure out which one's the right fit for you and um, then get in touch with our team. The details are on the website um, and they'll be happy to talk you through what the experiences are like on the different programs and, and figure out which one will be the right match. Okay, so let's uh, wrap up with our mad minutes yeah, which are five questions in 60 seconds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't worry, I don't think we've ever stuck to 60 seconds yet, but we'll uh, we'll see how we go. Eh? Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? The best piece of advice I ever received was not to sit around and wait for something else to happen in my career. I think a lot of young people are told, you know, by people above them um, in their workplaces <laughs> that you need to do your years as, as a junior, you know, five years of development, whatever, and then you can move into management and... Um, Actually, my first manager kind of told me that that wasn't the case and I'm very forever grateful for him because I did leave that organisation, which I think was sad for him, but in the end it led me to pollinate on a much more, um, just a much more inspiring and career journey that I wanted to take. Great, great. Uh, what's your favourite business book? Oh, my favourite business book. When I saw that question, I was like, am I going to be able to answer this? Because I don't actually like reading business books that much, but this one is amazing. The Hard Thing About Hard Things 
it's about a tech company CEO in Silicon Valley, which has very little to do with our business, but just phenomenal kind of management theory book. Very real, very practical. Yeah, okay, great. Yeah, we'll put a link for that in the uh, show notes. So have you got a uh, favorite business tool or resource that you use for delivering uh, impact through the business? Um, no, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I think we make them up a lot of the time and validate them, but they're usually designed for us. Okay, what's your favorite quote? Probably my favorite quote is it's been bandied around a lot lately around the climate change issue, but that quote um, – which goes something like, don't think that a small group of people can't change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. I think it's very inspiring, always helps me regain perspective. Yeah, perfect. Uh, And if you could go back in time, give your 20-year-old self some advice, what would it be? Enjoy your early 20s. (laughs) That's like the best time of your life. Um, You know, I was was a really busy university student and I kind of wish I just had a little bit more fun. I was always very responsible and serious. Um, But yeah, I don't have any huge regrets, but I think it's important you take those moments to just relish, especially if you're, you're studying that opportunity to learn and, you know, have a good time before the real world kicks in. Surely you would have told yourself something to get ScoMo to join a hip hop routine. Yeah. <laughs> if I'd only known with foresight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks very much. Uh, that's Alexi Seller. Uh, CEO and co-founder of the Pollinate Group. Uh, so thanks for talking to us today uh, and giving us all those great insights. Uh, I was really looking forward to this interview. I've been following what you guys have been uh, doing for years. Uh, so uh, thanks for uh, joining us today. Thank you, James. It was great to do the interview. So how good was that? That was Alexi Seller from the Pollinate Group. Uh, it's actually one of my favorite examples of a social enterprise that came up with a clever business model to solve a challenging problem for those families in need. Uh, by the way, if you've been inspired by today's show and you've got a great idea to change the world, uh, the first thing you need to actually do is get people to buy into that idea. So to make things as easy as possible for you, we've actually put together a free ebook called Selling Sustainability, uh, which will give you an easy-to-use seven-step framework to craft a compelling message to get people to buy into your big idea. And you can access that ebook through the show notes. And talking of show notes, if you want to access the show notes for today's episode, you simply visit bluetribe.co forward slash podcast and check out episode number one. So I believe that sustainability is a team sport and that the scale of the environmental and social challenges that we're all so passionate about solving is too big for any one of us to solve on our own. So if you want to be part of Team Blue Tribe, um, you can help out simply by subscribing to wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, leave a rating, uh, and tell someone else about the podcast so we can get the word out to other change makers and leaders just like you. Uh, coming up in the next episode. My friends and I were growing you know, pot in their, uh, in their basement uh, up in Canada, um, and uh, they couldn't make the plants work. And then one day they start feeding worm poop uh, to the plants, which is basically organic waste fed to worms. And that was sort of the inspiration moment that birthed the entire idea. So in 2006, our guest for the next episode featured on the cover of Inc. Magazine as the number one CEO in America under 30 years old as part of their coveted 30 Under 30 Awards. Today, he's on a mission to eliminate the idea of waste. You don't want to miss this one, and I can guarantee you'll never see waste the same way again. Thanks for listening to the Good Business Podcast. I'm James McGregor. Until next time.